Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. Welcome to another episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here joined now by a very talented writer and a member of our Tennis Channel family calling in from New York where we're getting ready for the U.S. Open 2020 edition, writing on Tennis.com and at and for Tennis Magazine. It's Ed McGrogan calling into the show. Ed, thank you for taking time to join the TC Live podcast this week. Very flattering, but uh, I appreciate it, and uh, good to be on. It's a lot. There's a lot to get to. We just wrapped up, uh, as we record this on Saturday, the Western and Southern Open from New York City which saw Novak Djokovic uh, win the men's title, another title for him, Azarenka winning in a walkover over Naomi Osaka, who pulled out. So there's a lot to get to with that tournament, the quick turnaround of the U.S. Open. But and the first thing, uh, and, and I know we're both kind of tennis nerds here, so we can just dive in full force, but the behind-the-scenes politics of what's going on on the ATP side is very fascinating. We had Novak Djokovic, John Is- Isner, and Vasek Pospisil all resigned from the ATP Players Council uh, last evening. It seems like the winds of change are coming for a union. Pospisil's quote was very telling, in my opinion, saying it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have any significant impact on any major decisions made by our tour. We, we know that. We know Roger and Rafa and the ATP chairman, Andre Gadenzi, are not in favor of this move right now. How did you take this news coming down, the timing of it, the decision that we might be getting the first iteration of an ATP Players Union? Yeah, back when the tournament schedule was laid out for the Western Southern Open, Saturday was supposed to be an off day, and it turned into anything but, mostly for off-court news, even though those have a way and did filter on the court. There was obviously um, Naomi Osaka's partner, which I'm sure we can get to, but as you said, the uh, new players association players union um, you know more than a whisper now it, it's something that has been put out there full force by Pospisil and Djokovic um, I mean Djokovic after his match today his victorious match um, that was the predominant discussion of his press conference after he I think he had one question that he I think answered for seven or eight minutes in length um, and you know it speaks to how a passionate he is about this. I think that he put it out there that he wanted to reinforce the point that this is something that just didn't come up out of the blue, that didn't wasn't created over the past uh, two weeks, two months, even year. This is something that's been percolating with him and some of the players that he's leading this, spearheading this with uh, for a while now. And, you know, one thing is that, Roger and Rafa, as you said, they're kind of on the other campus right now. This is all really preliminary, too. Mm-hmm. I think we should, you know, put that out there. Is I think a lot is going to be said over the next couple of days, over the Open, um, where this might go. But, you know, this is, I think this is Djokovic's, maybe his answer to some people who, you know, really kind of had a, a field day with him during the pandemic for a bunch of other reasons. But right. he is still, he was still the head of AT Play Player Council. This is something that he's brought up for a while. And I think this is something that he really, you know, is genuinely committed to for the legacy of the players he's with. And he made a point to say for the legacy of the sport, he, he said that, you know, this is obviously something that's going to be player driven and it's something something that can benefit those players, but he feels this is a benefit for the sport of tennis. So I think it's going to be fascinating where, what we hear over the next, you know, few days about this, because there's a lot that, um, will come out, especially once, you know, maybe Roger and Rafa say more than just a tweet about it. 
Right, and nobody, just to be clear, nobody uh, gives longer, more detailed answers in a press conference setting than Novak Djokovic. So seven, eight minutes doesn't doesn't necessarily surprise me there. But I think it's I think it's interesting for a lot of reasons. One being Djokovic, from his perch, being at the top of the sport right now, and a guy like Pospisil, they've had their differences on the players' council coming to the same sort of agreement from their different perspective perspectives is a good thing. I think a, a union in theory is a good thing. It is all preliminary. I do understand the timing aspect of where we are right now. I know it is a pandemic and I know that this being decided at a U.S. Open where there are a lot of players, predominantly European players, that aren't there. So does the timing of this, and I guess my follow-up to that, is the timing coming off as a shock that this is kind of starting now? I know it's all preliminary, but that it's kind of coming to a, a beginning, not ahead, but a beginning at a U.S. Open that doesn't have all the main parts there. I think that if you asked, excuse me, Djokovic Postel about it, they might think that their leverage has never been higher at this point because the sport of tennis just has so much to lose if the players aren't, you know, if they're not playing, if they're not competing. I mean, this is something that the sport is going to be dealing with for a while now. And I think that they believe that their bargaining power at this time where sports, live sports, is so critical from a financial aspect that maybe they feel that this is one of the best times that they can talk about this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I follow the NHL really closely. um, And, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting about that discussion was in getting back to return to play, they also put together a CBA that couldn't have been done any more different than how contentious it was years ago when the NHL had a work stoppage. So there's a big, to me, I was just kind of looking at those two examples of, you know, in some cases, I think everybody wants to work together when it's so clear that everybody is suffering collateral damage from the pandemic. But I think from the tennis point of view where at the end of the day, even though this is a a potential union, potential player association where it's a collective will, it's still, you know, for a player like Djokovic, it's still something that is kind of an individual effort. Like, he doesn't have as much to lose personally as, say, if, if, if a larger group, I think, was putting, right. putting itself out there for this. So I, I think Djokovic is, in some ways, an ideal representative for this because, I, you know, I think he's, he recognizes maybe, A, his position of power, but, B, also, like, maybe how fragile the sport is. And, you know, just my last thing about this is, is that again, and this is part that everyone has to understand, you know, not breaking news, but tennis is just so fragmented. And I think part of that, you know, going a little beyond that is I think tennis can be very vulnerable because it's so fragmented. And I think a, you know, an opportunity like this might stand a better chance to succeed because you're not running, you're not going up against, a unilateral body that, you know, has kind of everybody against you. Like there's the slams, there's the ATP, there's go on and on and on. And I think maybe that's a target that Djokovic, Pospisil, um, others may, you know, maybe they think they can take him on because tennis has room for various bodies. And this is the latest one, I think. Right, it would make people on the outside, the casual fans, head spin to explain how many different decision makers there are. So I, I agree. I, I think this can be a very good thing. The last you know, point question I wanted to add to this was another veteran player with a lot of you know, cachet in the game, Andy Murray, gets the idea of the union, is, is intrigued by it, actually went as far as to say he, he understands it, but said he won't sign right now for a couple different reasons, just wants to understand it more, but also said that he thinks women should be involved. Are, are we ever going to get to a point where maybe not partnerships the word, but there is some sort of agreement, some sort of unity across both the ATP and WTA tours? Yeah, it, it's a big, it's a big question. Um, and you think back to when, you know, this seems like a long time ago, but when Federer sent out that tweet, early in the pandemic, you know, talking about that ATP WTA merger that everybody thinks is, you know, really the end game to a lot of this. And, you know, we were, we were actually just looking at that, um, a writer of mine and uh, myself talking about it for a potential thing in tennis magazine. And we dug into a little, into, into it a little bit. And 
I think it was kind of made clear to us that it was certainly a big deal at the time. It was a, a news story that I think caught that even stretched beyond tennis a bit. But from what I can tell, it, it really hasn't, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of follow-up that I really saw that suggested that something like that is doable kind of in the short term, let's say. And I, and I think it, to bring here and what Murray said, I think unless the unless the tours already themselves are kind of aligned together, you know, in a way I can see how comprising a player association where it's really ATP driven in this case, like Djokovic at all, you know, they are probably looking to take on the tour as much as possible for prize money and earnings, et cetera. So I can see from that point of view, like why it's kind of the cards that sell this way, why this is at the moment a, a you know, just a, a single gender entity because, you know, there's not that foundation of a, of a, of a dual tour. And I think, I think that's the thing that may have to be overcome to see, you know, a, a men's and women's player association. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Well, as you said, we're at the preliminary stages for all of this. A lot remains to be uh, done, but there is uh, certainly no lack of intrigue off the court as well as on it. Talking to Ed McGrogan here on the TC Live podcast. Let's get to the on-the-court action right now as we get forward, look forward and backwards. The Western Southern Open ended today. We're already on to the U.S. Open, which will start on Monday. And uh, it is a unique situation, to say the least, Ed being one of the you know select few that's got the opportunity to go to the grounds to watch some of the matches, cover the matches live. There's the lodging at the hotel. Everybody but Djokovic and I think Serena are are in the bubble scenario. What's it been like, Ed, going to the grounds, the environment, the the no fans uh, situation, the atmosphere where it, it's a grand slam we're ge- gearing up for, but. At least seeing it on TV, it appears on the onset like nothing uh, like we've seen before. So what's it been like covering uh, the tournament so far, the Western and Southern, and being at the Flushing Meadows grounds? Yeah, I mean, thrown around a lot as a, as a watchword, but it really is. Um, you know, I've been going to the Open for almost 15 years now. And, you know, when I went down to pick up a credential and um, get tested, we can get into that um, after, but. You know, just the fact that this is a tournament of habit and by extension is a, a time of year of habit for players, for media, for anybody else associated with the game. Um, I, I was, you know, entering the, the site in a place that I somehow hadn't seen for the past decade. Um, you, and what you see when you get into the site is, you know, the grounds that are obviously normally teeming with with fans you know, right now I think today would have been Arthur Ashe Kids Day um, and it would have been qualifying before but you know you'll see the Adidas um, you know the store is turned into a racket streaming center you'll see where they normally would have Mercedes-Benz cars um, you know polished to the nines for everybody to gawk at they have pelotons and exercise bikes and jump rope for players so they can socially you know they can they can work out in a socially distant way while they're on the site because they're obviously just shuttled back and forth between the site and their hotels and they they have to do this the usd has to completely transform these grounds and they just underwent a you know a massive multi-year renovation and for this year hopefully only this year they've kind of had to do this one on the fly one of the most interesting things i saw there was at one of the gates, there's just a little placard sign with some security guards right next to it that said, if you cross this line, you will be withdrawn from the tournament. Wow. And, um, yeah, I took a picture of it. It's pretty much a keepsake at this point. Like, this is, if that doesn't sum up what 2020 in tennis is, I don't know what 
what you can do better than that. But, you know, I want to give the USTA um, credit for this. I, year, I mean, months and months ago, I didn't see any way tour tennis would happen this year. You know, the fact that the international travel bans are relaxed for players um, and they, you know, not having to do the quarantine coming into New York State, that was the game changer that allowed this to happen. So I want to give them credit for that. I think the response this week from the players has been pretty positive about it. I mean, I'm sure nobody is thrilled that they are in New York but really can't do anything. I think that that will be fine over the course of the tournament. Um, you know, unlike the NHL and NBA bubbles, players are not going to be here for two to three months. They're just going to be here for a couple weeks. And the ones that will be at the very end of it, you know, they'll end up – in the money rounds of the tournament. So I think the response has been good um, to this, you know, so far um, when, you know, you'll see shots of the grounds that I think are just mind boggling. Uh, but, you know, when you get to the tennis itself, I would never ever argue the point that fans are not needed where, which is what I think too many, a small minority of, of media really, have kind of latched on to since sports in general have returned. Like, oh, this, you know, did we really need the fans? Is this, I'm never going to go to that point. That's ridiculous, yeah. um, in my opinion. But the tennis itself, um, there's been, it was some very compelling tennis this week at the Western and Southern. And once you get into that level of match play, you can kind of forget about it for a bit because I don't think the quality of play has necessarily suffered. That to me has been. Right the best takeaway from this week is uh, we saw some really good tennis and I expect that to continue once we get to an even a term with even greater stakes. Yeah. The, the play itself, I mean, these are professionals. These are in a lot of cases at the top of their profession and they're playing for money. They're playing for points. They're playing for pride. Take your pick. They're going to, they've made this commitment. They're going to bring their a game. Now I do agree with you. The fans not being there isn't ideal. There are situations that we saw it in the Western and Southern Open with some players. Kennan comes to mind where there's no emotional lift for a, for an American player or a fan favorite making their comeback. I do think that part is going to be lacking a little bit. But props again to the USTA for pulling this off, you know, in accordance with the health uh, procedures and protocols in such a short time frame. You mentioned the testing, Ed. Uh, how has that process been? It seems like everything has been under control. There hasn't been an outbreak. There's been, you know, a, a couple of players. I, I think it was Peo was one of them who hit, who his uh, trainer or his friend was also, you know, tested positive, so we had to withdraw. But how has the testing been? How have the players, by your account, you know, reacted to it? And how is everybody feeling for all these safety protocols being put in place? Well, the testing procedure at the U.S. Open, and I can tell you just because I underwent mine today, one of them today is, you know, they're the saliva-based tests. Um, they're not the nasal tests, which are definitely a lot more intrusive. And what you, I think, saw a lot of social, a lot of, um, you know, over social media. I think Jamie Murray or Andy Murray might have put out over the summer to show. You know, that's kind of a. It's not the most pleasant experience. So I, I think just a the fact that the testing there is. A little more, it's simpler, um, it's a rapid response, of course, given the, the nature of this event. You know, in my case, and I believe the player's case, you, you are tested upon arrival before you can compete, before you can work, tested every four days thereafter. That may be different for the players. I don't believe it is. But I, I, I do think that this has just become part of the routine, and it has been for a while now for the players. The great majority of Certainly, the known names that every that the put everybody will be watching at the Open, for the most part, they have been competing for months now. And in almost all these tournaments, certainly any of the ones in the U.S., you know, I, I would certainly expect most in Europe. The Adria Tour was the obvious exception to that. You know, testing has just become part of the of the job, and I think players expect it. It's not. It shouldn't be an intrusion. Um, it's something that I think they're used to and right. will probably have to get used to for a little while. So purely from a testing point of view, and and I think just, you know, that because it's now a routine, I think there's a comfort level that players also have experienced because of that. I think that will be, you know, put to the test, so to speak, once, the, once we're traveling to more countries, we're going back to Europe after this, you know, you just have more opportunities for exposure and 
I think that will be tennis's biggest obstacle because no other sport really has so many different international touch points as tennis does. So I think that I don't expect, honestly, anything catastrophic or, you know, really debilitating from a, a, a virus point of view to impact the U.S. Open. Uh, I sort of feel like we have gotten through maybe the most difficult part, just setting up this infrastructure and players have been, you know, players have been here for about two weeks now. So I think this is going to go off well. And I think the protocols are in place and I think the players are uh, with some obvious exceptions, you know, it's not a full field, as you said, but I think it's a very good field and, um, and we'll be have, you know, have a grand slam tournament. We will, and I think again the tournament itself, putting in the no nonsense rules. Like if you violate, if you like as you said, cross that line or or do anything you're not supposed to, you're just withdrawn. Uh, the schedule is something we we often take for granted in, in tennis. They play so often, and it is systematically thought out. There's rest weeks given before majors, typically, at least for the top players. In this event, based on you know no other uh, no fault of anybody else's, but they had the Western and Southern in New York the week before the U.S. Open, not that break week that the players typically get when it is in Cincinnati. How do you think the condensed schedule, Ed, has affected quality of play we saw at the Western Southern Open and will lead into the U.S. Open, where you'll have players that are going right back into it, playing on a couple days rest, a day rest even, for Novak Djokovic? Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting for Djokovic and Osaka in particular because both of them, it, you know, Osaka withdrew from the final with a hamstring injury. Djokovic, for I think there was really a question if he was even going to play today, let alone not only does he play, he wins. So, you know, he'll be playing Monday, I believe, um, at the U.S. Open. So, as it turns out, with the players having this event right behind it, where with no tour level events for so long you actually want I think is want as much match play as you can cram into cram into um this this bubble that they're in um you know I, at the same time I don't think there will be too much of an issue with those two in particular I think they're just I think that's the eye that they have on mm-hmm. you know for other players again many of them did not it's not like everybody is playing right up until Saturday at the Western and Southern Open. So few of them did. Um, so I think the rest factor, I think they're going to be rested fine. And like I said, I, I think you always, players always try to peak for the slams anyway. And, you know, knowing what the logistics are, knowing what the schedule was, I don't think anybody is going to be caught off guard from a physical point of view you know, as long as they were able to, you know, let's say just get into the country and get sort of grounded and set up, I, I think that there's going to be the way I'm thinking about this now. I'm talking kind of in my head as I'm saying this. I think that chalk is still going to do very well at this tournament. I think for a while the thought was, well, this is such a bizarre tournament with a field that's really strange that, you know, this is an event that, you know, we could see like, the world number 78 winning this and no one would be surprised. No, I'd be incredibly surprised if, if the usual suspect didn't for the most part end up at the end of this tournament. Um, you know, you and I were talking offline before. And one of the things you had mentioned is, does this feel like a grand slam tournament? And a, uh, this week B, there was a great stat pointed out by um, a colleague of mine, Matt Fitzgerald, who said that Djokovic's last, um, I believe it was like his last eight losses at majors mm-hmm. came to players other than Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. Now, n- neither of those two are in this tournament, but at the same time, I think that the top players, as they've always done, whether it's core conditions, whether it's circumstances you know as it relates to a a particular tournament they invariably find a way to overcome it and that's why we're in this historic era that we're in on both the men's and women's side i think that it would be a surprise to me even amidst everything that's going on if we still didn't see some of the most usual names finding their way to the top 
You know, it's interesting. I agree wholeheartedly with you on the men's side of the draw. The women, I'm, I'm still not at that point. I think part of it is the numbers of the top players out and also add the fact that we've just naturally seen parity in the women's game the last couple of years, regardless of who's playing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down as far as like outside the top 70, uh, but I do think on the women's side, especially this bracket is looking very, very wide open and we can start kind of looking at that, at that point, Ed McGrogan here on the TC live podcast with the women's side going into yesterday morning, should say yesterday evening Naomi Osaka was the favorite to win this tournament she pulls out of the Western and Southern Open final because Ranka wins the title so props to her for for doing that she will be back in the top 30 but Osaka pulls out she's now you know still the the thought process is she's going to play but we don't know what she's going to have and what kind of condition she's going to be in she's kind of been downgraded to co-favorite with Serena Williams to win this tournament shows you how fast it can change Ed because at that what she looked like going in, everything she had been through on and off the court, beats Elise Mertens in straight sets, was rounding into form, has won this tournament before, and then we get the crushing news of the injury. It definitely hasn't been a slow week for Naomi Osaka. No, and can I walk back once? Well, I'm not going to walk back. No, I'm going to say yeah. this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this about the, the cream rising to the top here. I'm not buying Serena when it comes to uh, stock watch for the U.S. Open here. I have seen. That's fair. <laughs> you know, I, I think this. I think the scar. I think this. The the four major finals and the zero and four in those matches, combined with, you know, losses to Shelby Rogers in Lexington and to Sakari here this past week. I just I'm not seeing it with Serena, and I know she's right. going to be. You know, I know she's going to be a betting favorite. Like, there's a lot of public money on her, of course, and. If you're if you're putting together a list of the U.S. Open favorites, sure you're going to have her on it. But I actually, I mean, I think that she could. I think if you're looking at for, for a for a possible very high seed to trip up, yeah. Um, and this is where I'm talking about walking back what I said. But I think in this particular case, I'm just not sold on Serena. I think the pressure that she is putting on herself is just astronomical. Um, you can see it. I mean, I can't, I have a hard time remembering a close match that she was in, that she was involved in win or lose where it didn't look like for a few minutes, like she was just going to like, that she was just going to melt down at, at some point. Like there has, been, you know, yeah, and you're exactly all the credit right. to her for, yeah, all the credit to her for, you know, in many cases still overcoming that. Um, it obviously hasn't worked out in the grandstand finals and that's not taking anything away from her opponents who have played really well, uh, obviously in those, but I'm just, I'm not seeing it for Serena. And I think to your point about the overall parity, I think there's so many players in the top, the very top tier mm-hmm. that do have a chance in this. I think, uh, with Serena, you know, not only those four major finals, I mean, not winning a set in either of them, uh, you always have to consider her age. The fact that she hasn't gotten match reps in, which has been one of the, the critiques, like maybe she isn't matched tough as she used to be when she was playing a, a more full schedule. But the stat that jumped out at me, I mean, Rogers and Sakari back to back weeks, she won the first set, lost the match. That hadn't happened in like yep. years before, and it happened in back-to-back tournaments. So I, I'm with you. I mean, Serena always with the mental toughness and what she's done and the fact that it is a wide-open tournament, it's hard to bet against her. But, yeah, for the value of her being the favorite, I'm not seeing it either. Um, I, you know, And part of it, too, is we talk about it's not so much age. I, now here I go, about to walk back something else. Serena, with me, it, it always seems like what kind of Serena are we going to get early in the tournament dictates what kind of Serena we're going to get later in the tournament. And what I mean by that is sometimes she's locked in, ready to go, has that look where it, you kind of get the vibe that it's going to take a Herculean effort to win this tournament. And other times she's just kind of floating by and is mentally tough to get through it. The, the field's not getting any younger, Ed. You know, there's there's tons of good young players that have seen Serena play and have seen how she's lost and are copying certain blueprints to beat her. So that's my take on yeah, Serena. There was, yeah, and, um, you know, seven matches, obviously you have so many opportunities to, you know, get exposed. And this, obviously any player, someone is going to win seven matches. Mm-hmm. That's, a, of course, a given. What Serena lately in the slams has reminded me of to a point is 
how I was looking at Roger Federer before his sort of re-breakthrough in 2017. There was a, a many-year stretch, I think, um, from 2012 Wimbledon to uh, just before he won the 17 Australian Open, where Roger would look at slams. He would look unbeatable. The U.S. Open in particular, he would he was a given to just mow through most of the early rounds of draws. There's an exception here or there. But at some point, it just wouldn't click for him. And some of that is reminding me of what I'm seeing with Serena as well as you kind of almost never know when it can happen either. And because for the most part, Serena is playing, you know, like no other 38, soon to be 39 year old is in the world because she's that good, of course. But we've just seen it over and over again. It's, it's, it's more than just kind of a random happening. It's, it's been a pattern for her. Um, she, you know, her, her peak is still, if she is playing at her peak, she is still the best player. I believe that. But it's been harder and harder to see that sustained for an entire major. And we'll see if she proves us wrong. I mean, th- th- this would probably be the ultimate, uh, you know, denouement of that. We'll see. I'd say at her peak, and then this ties it back to the original point. I, I-, I would actually put Pico Osaka ahead of her right now at this current point, but then no, that's, a fair, that's a fair point. Yep. yep. Her serving. I mean, no one's serve has ever been like Serena's in the women's game, but Osaka's serving when it's on, she's getting free points. She's, she's looks locked in, you know, the Aussie open loss to Coco golf, incredible accomplishment for Coco, but that was one of the worst matches Naomi had played. And you wondered what we were going to get. That's why the injury, I mean, it, it just is such a backbreaker because this was her focus locked in seemed like she was peaking for the slams, like we were just talking about. I'm, you know, that's another one where I guess we'll have to see what match one looks like. It's, you know, being the favorite in this tournament, it's going to be tough, but what she looks like, what kind of energy level, how her mobility is, we'll have to see. Well, I'm curious too, if it was more of a precautionary thing than anything, because I didn't get a sense that there was anything wrong with her upon, um, you know, her match with, uh, with Mertens when she did play on, on uh, Friday. So I, I wonder if this is more of a, I don't want to, I don't want to risk the open potentially, uh, but we'll see. And can I just say a word about Coco Goff as you brought sure. her up? No one is talking about Coco Goff. And if you're looking at, if you're comparing it to last year's U.S. Open, that was the only person we were talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. Um if you if you want to, and she's you know still unseated, I think just off the cusp, I believe after the um, the many withdrawals that Terman has here. But if you're looking for players that have these opportunities, the talent is obviously there with Goff. That's a given. She has proven so often already, which is crazy to say at her age that she can handle the pressure. Um, she really hasn't been. The talk really hasn't been about her this summer and leading in this tournament. So I, you know, I wonder if this, this could also be a nice, a nice opportunity to remind us yet again, that we're probably watching like a, a future hall of famer in our midst here. So yeah. um, she doesn't have an early, she does not have an easy draw by any means. She's in, a, I think a very difficult half yeah. to say nothing, but I, I just wanted to point that out that I was like, Oh, remember, Remember the player that just stopped sports on its head last year? Um, she's still here, too. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah, did yeah. it twice. Um, yeah, she's got Svetostova in the first round of potential. Another matchup with Naomi Osaka in the third round if they both get there. I, I agree. I mean, we're, we're watching. It seems like one of the surest things where we're looking at future greatness. There is some things that her game needs to work on. But the competitive side, her ability to problem solve out there when her A game isn't there in the movement, I mean, she is uh, as dangerous as anybody uh, in this tournament. So I guess we'll we'll kind of go through. Well, we can kind of end the women's bracket look at with this. Ed, who are some some seeds that you like that you think you know could be primed for a run, and who are some top seeds that you think Ooh, this, this could be an upset? I know you mentioned Serena, but uh, who do you think could be yeah. up for that? Yeah, I think I'm going to hang my big uh, upset on Serena. I, I think that's going on a limb far enough because I know some people might not agree with anything I said there. But in, in terms of who could um, take advantage of this, 
I think we're really, I think we're due for that Patrick a bit of a breakthrough. Okay. She's also, you know, I think in a difficult part of the draw, but at the same time, and now this Osaka news opens that up a little bit more. I do really feel like Petra has, she's just, she's not, not only has she gotten to back to the level of play that she was before the, you know, unfortunate act um, home invasion that happened years ago with her, but you know, she's been doing that on a more consistent basis. And it's, it's kind of, almost hard to talk about consistency once we're just getting back into 12 with Thomas, but I, I didn't want to forget about the strides that Kvitova has taken and really like just how good of a player she is. And it's, it's almost hard to believe that she only has those two majors considering I would really um, consider Kvitova as one of the top favorites here. Um, again, not an easy quarter to get through but I think if she does um, this could be a great chance for her you know we haven't mentioned um, Kenan to this point uh, you know this is the player where you know you talked about the lack of crowds etc I wonder how Kenan responds to that um, I haven't loved how she's played this summer in the she because she has played a lot in Charleston WTT yeah it hasn't been um, good she obviously took yeah, she took a first round loss or opening round loss in Western and Southern. You know, doesn't have the uh, easiest way into the tournament herself. So I, I'm more curious about Kennan than than anything. You know, looking back on some other players, another player who didn't have a good summer, but I was looking at the you know some of the odds for players and like I couldn't believe how low she was. A former champion, Sloan Stevens, only well, three years ago. I'm glad you brought her but, up because. It hasn't been good, and we're not. This is a this is a reoccurring problem for her now. The the thought process being, I agree that if she turns it on, I mean her her upside, her her value at, at its apex is is as elite as anybody in the sport. But it hasn't been good, and uh, it's been a couple tournaments going now. So that is something I think we got to look at. Yeah, and the one other player I'll mention too um, to talk about here. We were doing our expert picks on tennis.com. Um, we have champions, we have bust selections, dark horses. Um, I have one editor who picked Garbini Muguruza to win the tournament and one to put her on the side of she will crash out early. So some very divisive thoughts on her, but you know, that was in January. She looked really, really good um, at another hardcore major and um, looked for looked quite a while like she was going to win that uh, that slam. So she'll be interesting to see as well. And um, you know, just in fairness, so we actually mentioned number one seed Pliskova. Um, I'm also not buying it. I just I just don't. Just too. There's just too. The margins on her. The margins on her game are so low. I feel like that I think everything kind of has to be in sync, and I just feel over seven matches, it's a tough ask for her. Well, I'm glad you brought up Pliskova because if there's so many storylines for this U.S. Open, but one of the ones that we aren't talking about is she is hands down the top player and one of the top players in the game, the, the, the chief of this that hasn't performed in majors. It just hasn't happened for her. She's number one seed. She's got a couple premier titles. And uh, I'll just say, if we get her and Jen Brady in the third round, I'd like to see what the value is on that for Brady because uh, that could be a that could be a slip up for sure. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people are liking Brady <laughs> after that Lexington run. Yep. yep. Uh, Muguruza, I get being divisive. I do trust her in uncertain times more than others. So it's uh, we'll see how it we'll see how it goes in the first couple matches. But she's another one to kind of look at. What level is any Samova going to have playing in the U.S. Open? We don't really have a lot to go off of for her. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, Sakari with that run being, you know, Coco Goff and then Serena in the match that we, you know, were just alluding to. There's some there's some openings here where I think the more I look at this, the the summation that I have, Ed, is that uh, it would kind of shock me if an unseated player won the U.S. Open on the women's side, but it wouldn't shock me if anyone all the way down to the low 20s wins the U.S. Open. It'll be. I think it'll be a nice tournament either way to watch. But I'm. I'm going to go with. I will go with Kvitova uh, if you have to press me for a chance okay. on the women's side. Yep. You're going to go with Kvitova, man. I. I think if I had to make my pick right now, 
Kvitova is a, a nice choice. I'll, I'll say, uh, God, I, I'm, I'm going to be on record when she pulls out. I'll say Naomi. If she plays, she wins. I think she locks in and wins this tournament. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, we'll and I mean, yeah. And with everything, yeah, and with obviously with everything that she, um, you know, led last week, I mean, the certainly the motivation is there. So there's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I would love to see the Kvitova, um, a of a Osaka quarterfinal to uh, put our championship picks to the test. Can I just also say props to uh, someone in this tournament, Kim Kleisters? Just love that she's playing, and uh, I was always a fan of her game, her style, and I think there's something to be said about just being a professional and being a very, very crafty, smart veteran out there. Yeah, with Kim, um, yeah, it was it was we were wondering if she was going to play. She just had her. Um, you know, presser today, um, talking a, little, a bit about that too. The fact that, you know, you're, we're talking about a multi-time U.S. Open champion come back here. I, I think the lack, I think the lack of match play in the end, you know, she was injured during WTT, um, this summer when a lot of players were getting, uh, match play. I, I think, I think it's a nice, I, I'm going to go with more nice story than possible contender for Kim, but I'm happy to have her prove me wrong. I, I could see a couple, maybe one or two wins. That's all. That's where I'm saying nice story as well. Uh, but yep. Ed McGrogan, TC Live podcast with, with myself, Mitch Michaels. Let's look at the men's side now. And uh, it, it starts, doesn't necessarily end, but it definitely starts with Novak Djokovic. His dominant run in 2020 continues. Beats Milos Ronic in three sets. 23 and 0, 30, 23 and 0 in 2020. That's his 35th Masters title. He's now won every one of them twice. Is that the Golden Double? Is that is that what we're calling the Double Golden? I don't know what the what the nomenclature they call it, is there. They call, they call it the Golden Masters. I'm not I'm not in love with that nomenclature, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean I'm not going to spite it either for that achievement. Well, luckily it's only him on that list, so we don't have to bring it up much, but. Uh, you know, we saw Novak Djokovic mention the stuff he was dealing with off the court. On the court, this wasn't the traditional prototypical Djokovic coast to the title. He had, you know, some trip-ups in that Barankis match early where he, you know, got broke, had, had an injury timeout, won in three sets in a three-hour match against Bratista Gut where he had to break back at 6-5 to force a tie break in the third, which he won 7-0, and then loses the first set to Milos, who had been playing great, and then wins it in three, finds a way to win. So, on one hand, championship greatness, all the intangibles that make him one of the best ever. But on the other side, his level isn't where we've seen it. And do you attribute that, Ed, to the circumstances, everything he's been through, you know, having tested positive for COVID, not having the match reps? Or is this to, you know, be expected that he's still kind of just playing his way back into form? I think it's all more impressive that Djokovic came out on top after two matches where it looked like he was done. Uh, the Batista Goot semifinal was an absolutely wild match that yeah. even for as many as I've seen, I was kind of just, I was just trying to rack my brain to think if I'd seen something like it. Is there anybody um, like Batista from, Goot? Like the, I, I got to think that nobody wants to play him. Like he's one of the people that you see on your no, draw and they're just like, come on him again. <laughs> no, I mean, it's really, and it's really only the Rogers Rafa's, Djokovic is the world that really kind of have that tier below the top tier, but nonetheless have like an obscenely lopsided record against them. They just, it's just like that one little level that is kind of keeping them at that strata of the game. Um, but, you know, it was, it, it was just, it was a great performance by him, except, you know, coming from two, five down to six, five, but then getting broken at love when serving for the match. And then and if you want, and then you get another crazy, like a six, a seven, Oh, tiebreaker, I believe, or seven, yeah. one. So, you know, to me, and then, you know, on Saturday, if Djokovic again, who, you know, there, I think there was some question whether to play, but goes down pretty hard first set around it. And then, it's almost just like the the story that you just almost know the ending to. It's just uh, yet again. I think this is. It's it just to me, it is such a clear favorite that Djokovic has got this tournament. I would be, 
I would be very, very surprised um, based on what we saw and just kind of based on his comfort level. I think, you know, is, was it flawless? No, but Novak Djokovic to me re- is not the kind of flawless player that maybe Federer was at his peak or even Rafa potentially. Djokovic, obviously he has moments like that, but he is someone whose career in many ways has been defined by what he's been able to do when he's had resistance against them. At the Open in particular, he's won historic matches against Federer down match points, you know. This has been a recurring thing of his career. So to me, what I saw from Djokovic, I didn't see anything that would would concern me, anything that I would say is a caution or a negative. I thought it was a perfect test for him, and he passed it with flying colors. And I think the motivation is there for him to not only win this tournament, but maybe to see if he can get through this year on B. And he talked about it openly. He's minus odds to win the tournament, and it feels like it's a safe bet. And part of it, too, being that mentally, these guys, and that's what they don't get enough credit for. And, you know, you can throw Serena in there, too, but the greats of the game, that they are just so mentally tough, they're so composed, they can deal with the ebbs and flows of a tough match. In these tiebreakers where his record's insane, I don't think he's lost one in like a year, but he just doesn't make the unforced errors. And, and to your point, it might not be as flawless as Federer, but he will come up big in the biggest points. It should be... Something to point out that we're also playing best of five now, and I know match toughness and match reps for this and, and maybe cardio shape for all these players might not be what it was when they were playing best of five the last time in Australia, but that makes it that much more tougher to figure out this guy because, Ed, you don't have to just beat this guy best of three now. you got to take three sets off of him. And, and, and just saying that out loud is kind of terrifying. And I think it just bolsters his case even more, the fact they're moving to best of five. I think he, you know, it's been well documented about how his regimen preparing for matches, going from the diet to the psychological elements of the game and just his experience in general um, in, in that type of competition, as if you could add more reason for him to be picked. I saw those negative odds too for the tournament and you're right. It does feel like you're almost throwing your money away, putting it on someone else. I just, I think he is an overwhelming favorite in this tournament. I don't think his draw is that bad. I think Isner would possibly even in the whole half of his draw, just because of the way that he plays and, uh, and Isner by is no means a best of five set player either. But then you look at his half of the draw Zverev, of course, he's the uh, on the other quarter, but same half. You know, uh, definitely a, an impressive um, Australian Open, um, getting to the semis. Mm-hmm. But I think you take Djokovic in that every time. The came to it, Sitsipas is obviously another type that people also consider. But those matchups, I think you take Djokovic so much have a higher percentage than anybody else. Um, I don't see any way he doesn't get to the final. I'm, I'm just going to kind of put that yeah. out there right now. The one thing that I would add is for these younger players, the Dominic teams of the world who, you know, we had the terrible match at the Western and Southern Open, but maybe that wasn't, maybe that was a blip in the radar. The players that are in the top five, the top 10, they don't have to beat both Djokovic and Nadal. They don't have to beat two or, or throw Federer in there. They don't have to beat multiple members of tennis royalty. So that might be better. You still have to get through Djokovic, which is hard enough. But the draw does open up by the fact that the path is not, you know, as team saw, beat Rafa, beat Zverev at Aussie, and then get Djokovic after. Take him to five right. sets, but you wonder what that would have been like if he, you know, got a little fortunate break in the draw that you know, these guys at the top have earned and have gotten themselves. So that'll be interesting to see. Uh, and I do just want to mention team because that was one of the weirdest matches I've ever seen, him getting destroyed by Krajanovic uh, and not doing mm-hmm. anything in, in that match at all. But on hard courts, he's proven that he is at the top of the world and can play with and beat any of these guys. He's got the two seed. He's got a path to Joker in the final right in front of him. Can he put it together and get there? And can he be the first one to break through being a couple years older, team's the one that I'm looking at most closely going into this tournament, definitely on that side of the draw. Yeah, and I, I, I think he is the clear number two seed. I, I, I completely agree with what you just said there. I think he has proven, he's really, he's taken this, his what has made him special on clay, and he has also applied that to hard courts. I mean, 
heavy, heavy ground strokes with a lot of spin. I mean, that's going to work on any surface, especially on a, a faster court here. You know, I think team is, is the rightful number two seed that that loss was so surprising given how much team had played this summer and for whatever you want to say about the exhibitions. I mean, he, he looked pretty good in a lot of them, which is why it was so perplexing. So, you know, I could see, I, I could see, you know, in team's case, he's never been the number two seed at a, at a major from what I remember. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's definitely a, a new element of like the target that's on his back because, you know, we were missing some really big names. You know, with fans in attendance, maybe that would be a bigger deal. But I think Teen is, you know, he's at the point of his career where he's got the experience as well. Um, he knows what he has, you know, yet to accomplish. Right. You know, I see, I, I don't see a lot of trouble with him in the early going, and it'll just come down to kind of those tests again. And, and he's passed a lot of them. Like you said, he's beaten. The, he's beaten some of the biggest names on big events, um, but it's just, you know, we'll see how it goes for the whole seven matches. You know, I, I watched the uh, Aussie Open, that match team in Zverev. Zverev played his heart out, had been progressing normal. And you watch that Murray match, the Western Southern Open, and here come the service issues yet again. It's, it's, it's the narrative that keeps coming up with Zverev. He's got all the tools. He's got the frame. He's got multiple Masters 1000 titles, but for whatever reason... He hasn't performed in Grand Slams. You think this will be the year that we see some consistency, that path that goes through Sitsipas to the semifinal? You think Zverev can realistically get there this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to give Zverev more credit than demerits from what we saw this year. That Aussie was a big one for him. That was a much-needed semifinal there. You know, you, when, when Zverev broke through a couple of years ago, I was absolutely I was absolutely convinced he had a major or two in him, maybe even more. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a game of, it's a, a serve is a, is a, you know, that's the Achilles heel. There's, there's a lot going on there. It never looks really comfortable. I think the fact that he, he has cleared some of those obstacles already um, is encouraging more than anything. Um, sometimes players, I think once they have some, really early career setbacks and just kind of can't move past something that kind of lets it define them for a long time. I think Zara, his talent, um, his ability, I, I think this is, I think almost regardless of what he does here, I think this has kind of been a successful year for him in a way. I, I think that if you put, if you ask me between him and Sitsipas, the four or five in there, I would still maybe err towards Sitsipas. I, I just, I, I do love, some of what he does a little bit more on this court. It would be a great match to see, but the problem for either of those guys, like I said, is that Novak Djokovic isn't too <laughs> far away either. Yeah, and Tsitsipas himself love his game, uh, his variety, his style and flair, but he hasn't exactly had the best track record in Grand Slams either, so uh, for all the, the flags Zverev gets, he's not the only one that's you know had a tough time. Medvedev being the three seed, we should point out, made the final last year, gave Nadal everything he can handle. Hasn't looked amazing getting back to it, but who really has? So his consistent game, how great he was on a hard court, he's another one. And I'll ask you the same question as we wind this thing down on the TC Live podcast. Who do you like to make a run for some of the seeded players? And I know Chalk seems to be more of uh, in vogue for the men's game, but who are some uh, seeds that could slip up early in your opinion? Yeah. Um, you know, to me, you know, we talk about kind of high seeds, you know, we have David Gofan is one who made his way into the top 10. Um, you know, you're, you are seeing some players who found their, you know, are getting some really big bumps because of some of the omissions. You know, we'll see what a Pelka does coming back from a retirement at Western Southern, but to draw a Pelka first round is just brutal for a seated player, especially a top ten player. So, you know, I think that I think that's one that you might want to consider as maybe a bit of a danger zone there. Um, you, know, you brought up Medvedev. I, I, I think I do like I like the possibility of him having another deep run here. Um He's clearly comfortable with the surface, with the setting. Um, he's kind of his own guy in terms of like the fact that he fed off the crowd so much last year is a big part of it. But I don't think this guy 
internal motivation either. And uh, so, you know, Medvedev getting that three seed, you know, with that comes some nice, you know, you get, you're getting better draws, you know, a, barring, you know, a really bad, a really unlucky unseated player around you. So I think Medvedev can take advantage of that. You know, one player who we haven't heard a lot about, but if you think back like two years ago was really a vote candidate, very trendy and now he's, you know, he's up. To, he's still up at eleven. Mm. Is Karen Hatchinov yeah. has a game that's really, um, you know, so well suited for a fast court. Um, there is a, there was an adjustment here of the courts at Flushing Meadows to Lake Hold, and that was, a, you know, I think players were saying, you know, definitely playing a little bit faster. Hatchinov has a game that's got, and he's had success at the Open too. Um, it's a tough first round matchup. I think matchup. if it's like, if it's all clicked. Yeah, center's really that's that's a tough one. I think if it's all clicking for a guy like that, that's that's danger for kind of anybody around him. Um, so we'll see. And then you have to talk about Raonic. You know, obviously here um, at Western Southern, I mean, he impressed me. Um, yeah. It's a guy who you, you you think that if you can get the serve back, you can you know his his whole advantages are neutralized. Like you know, what you can maybe say about a guy like Isner or Pelkic. But you have to be impressed with what Raonic did from, um, you know, from the ground as well. There, taking out Sitsipas is not easy, and uh, and he gave Djokovic pretty much all he could handle too. So, I think where you know, I think we'll see a lot of, um, in spite of how heavy I am in Djokovic winning this, that doesn't take away from a lot of really compelling subplots throughout a two-week-long tournament. Absolutely. Um... You know, and I do think there's that thought process too, where, and I mostly agree with it, that if you get that tough first round matchup and you win that, that could be good for your chances going forward. It, it can be scary, but if Hatchinoff beats center, gets some momentum, it all clicks. Uh, Andre Rublev, somebody that I expect big things from this tournament. Maybe it's Berrettini at six. Seems like that's a little high for him at this point in his career. I think Rublev's there. Dimitrov made the semis last year. He gets Tommy Paul, who beat him in the Aussie Open in the first round. So that's a fun first-round match mm. as well. Uh, it's funny how we just – and Felix on that side too. It's funny how we look at whoever's not on Djokovic's side and think, wow, this is <laughs> entertaining and could open up. But there's some uh, – I am. By default, <laughs> yeah. by default, they almost have a chance because yeah. they're away from exactly. Yep. So I'd have to say Djokovic, but uh, I'll say it's a, it's a Djokovic team final. I'll go chalk on the men's side for the final there. That would be a good one. I'd love to see that. I, I would absolutely love to see that. And, uh, you know, one, two, it, it's possible. Um, you know, then again, so is Demir Jumer versus uh, Homi Menor and the final two. I, I guess we have to uh, prepare for the possibility of that one as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, Ed McGrogan, this was uh, a blast here on the TC Live podcast. Uh, last thing I have it in my notes here on a lighter moment. Um, how do you think that the NHL figured out a way to give your New York Rangers the number one pick? Well, I mean, <laughs> this, I know this, you saw the lottery. It, <laughs> I saw the lottery and I was very happy. I did. Um, look, they rebuilt the right way. Listen, we have, mm -hmm. they, uh, they committed to the build. Um, and, uh, they have obviously gotten some good fortune along the way, but, um, we're still, we're at an interesting year for them. They're kind of in, is, is, as promising as this year is, they're still kind of in cat hell this, this last year. I think the big push for them, um, is the, um, 21, 22 season where hopefully a lot of things will be in better shape by that point. But uh, I, I love what we have, uh, building in New York as sad as it was to not, um, knocked down the door over the past uh, half decade or so with Henrik and everybody there. So um, good times in Rangerland. Uh, you know, I would expect uh, Lafreniere, assuming there's not a, a very odd trade that comes through, um, to be yet another piece in, uh, you know, we'll maybe – Maybe that will be the uh, the first time we can all gather for the Rangers ticker tape parade down to Canada Heroes. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that could be uh, that could be big for you, but uh, it was an iconic moment for the franchise getting that pick and and doing it as you said the right way. They had to take that step back. So I had to. I'm a big hockey fan as well. I had to bring that up that there was a, a bright moment in all of this for you, at least as a Ranger fan, that uh, the number one pick is uh, going to New York City. Well, they got, I mean, they had, they got some, you know, quote unquote playoff experience, take, take three L's, but end up getting the number one pick out of it. So if you, I think if you're looking at it from a pure team building standpoint, I don't think it could have worked out much better for them. So you got them and, um, and we will see where it goes, but uh, we still got like another what month and a half of hockey, so we'll we'll stick with what we got uh, right now and let the uh, let the Rangers sort of heal their wounds and uh, figure out their cap situation. We will, we will indeed, Ed McGrogan. This was a blast. Thanks for coming on the TC Live podcast, and uh, make sure you know you stay safe and enjoy yourself covering this uh, unconventional U.S. Open. Perfect. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Ed McGrogan on the TC Live podcast. We'll have another episode next week. Reminder, you can catch every episode at tennis.com slash podcast and uh, all your podcast devices as well. We'll be back for another episode of Halfway Point of the U.S. Open with some analysis, updates, and more. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast. We'll see you next week.